0: can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We are beginning our study of Ephesians 2 this morning after spending uh, 20-ish weeks in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 was very rich and deep. Ephesians 2 is much more of the same. So let's go ahead and read our passage and uh, get going. Ephesians 2, 1-5. through 5, We'll work through these five verses over the next couple few weeks. We're certainly not going to cover it all today, but um, I will read it all today. Ephesians 2, 1-5, follows I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Now, of course, chapter 2 flows directly out of chapter 1. In fact, as you may know, the chapter and verse breaks in the Bible are man-made. They're not a part of the original letter. It was just a letter. Uh, with no chapter and verse when he originally wrote it. But the chapter and verse just makes it easier for us to break it down and study. All to say, um, though we can only study bits and pieces each week, we should always be reminded that um, each bit is part of the whole. And Paul's thought, though extremely in-depth, so much, so much depth that we need to spend you know, a week on a few words and that sort of thing, uh, but his thought, though extremely in depth, is also very orderly and coherent and developing throughout the letter. So, if I were going to attempt, uh, which I am, if I were going to attempt to summarize the general themes of chapter one, I would say this Salvation is God's work, salvation is God's gift and salvation is in Christ. Salvation is God's work. In chapter 1, we see that God planned and purposed the salvation of His people. We see words like predestined. Verse 4, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption through Christ. So God planned and purposed our salvation. We also see that God executed our salvation, He accomplished our salvation in Christ. God planned and purposed it, and Jesus went to the cross to accomplish it. We also see that God has given us His Holy Spirit to ensure that we will make it home. Everyone that's been saved has been given the Holy Spirit to ensure that we will follow Him to make it home. So God planned and purposed our salvation. Jesus accomplished our salvation. And the Holy Spirit has been given to apply our salvation to us and to ensure that we will receive the fullness of our salvation when we get to glory. Salvation is God's work. It's also very clear in chapter 1 that salvation is God's gift. Verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It's all about God blessing us. Verse 5, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. We see that a few times in that first section. To the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace. Salvation is all grace. It's it's all gift. And perhaps most clear in chapter 1 is the fact that salvation is all in Christ. The text says that we were chosen in Christ. We were redeemed by Christ. We were adopted through Christ, etc., etc., Salvation is God's work, salvation is God's gift, and salvation is all in Christ. So, those themes are present in chapter 1. We'll see them continue to be developed in chapter 2. In fact, I don't think there's any other place in the Bible that I'm aware of that develops those themes as clearly as in Ephesians 1 and 2. So, with that in mind, let's focus our attention at the beginnings of Ephesians 2, Um you're going to notice a couple, or maybe you already did, a couple different contrasts in these few verses. Contrast between our former life as non-Christians and our current life as Christians. One of the contrasts you see is death versus life. The other is wrath versus mercy and grace. So this week we're going to focus on the contrast of death and life. Next week, going from children of wrath to being recipients of God's mercy And grace. The text says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Does anybody notice anything interesting in that statement? Uh, Even maybe seemingly contradictory. It's hard to walk when you're dead. Good, Good point. It says that we were dead in our sins, and it says that while we were dead in our sins, we walked in our sins. So, What does that mean? Um, The first anchor that we need to put down in order to understand it is that dead means dead. So, the basic meaning of what Paul is saying is this. Though we were physically alive and able to walk, we were spiritually dead in our sins. We were alive in the sense that we had breath in our lungs and we were living beings on earth, but we were spiritually dead, dead dead to the things of God, physically alive, spiritually dead. Uh, real quick, we're not going to go into the as much of the outflow of this spiritual death in our lives, not yet at least. Paul says, you were dead in your sins in which you once walked, and then he goes on to describe a bunch of the results of that. We were following the course of this world, following Satan, disobeying God, etc. Um, I want to address every word, every thought that's in the text, but that will best be addressed when we get to chapter 4 and look back on that. So we're, we're not skipping it, but we will come back to it when we get to chapter 4. For right now, I just want to focus on the general contrast of uh, death to life, wrath to mercy and grace. Now, I'll say this. Because it says that we were dead at the same time that we walked, that has caused some people to say that dead doesn't really mean dead. It can't. I mean, if we're dead, how are you walking? And that's not a, you know, it's legitimate concern. Um... I was in a conversation not long ago with a, someone that's close to me and they said that to me. They said, whatever that means, it, it, it can't mean dead. But maybe it means dormant or, or something like that. Like, you know, your faith is dormant until you activate it and believe in Christ. Sounds appealing, especially at first glance. There is a you know fairly large problem um, with that. And never know. Some of these are like sharpies, and so if you write on here with a sharpie, that's not good. Um, Necros means dead, dead body, just for good measure, corpse, and just in case you're confused, can also mean without life. So, the word that we have here is um, a form of necros, which means dead, dead body, corpse, or without life. Now, the word presents enough of a problem. Um, it doesn't mean dormant. It doesn't mean sick. It means dead. But here's the bigger problem. It's the same word that we use when we talk about Jesus' death. So, turn to Luke 24. Luke 24 Um, Jesus appears to His disciples after the resurrection. They are uh, not a little bit troubled by this. They're not sure what to believe. They're pretty terrified. You know, is this a spirit? Um, So one thing that Jesus does in order to prove that it's actually Him and not a spirit, and that He's actually, you know, fully risen from the dead and they're not just dreaming is that he says hey do you have a piece of fish give me some fish so he eats the fish so he's bodily resurrected from the dead and then he says some things to them starting in verse 44 Luke 24:44 Then he said to them these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So, same word there, dead. Same, you know, basic word, necros. It's a little bit of a different form, but it still means the same thing. Dead, dead body, corpse, all that. Turn a couple pages to the right to John chapter 2 and we'll pick up in John 2:15. <clears throat> and making a whip of cords, this is Jesus. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a trade, a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body when, and when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, same word, meaning dead, dead body, corpse, without life. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So back to Ephesians. In Ephesians 2:1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Um, That was our original state. In in fact, he makes the case that every human being was in this original state. In verse 1, he says we were dead in our sins. In verse 3, another way he describes our original state is that we were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, everyone. Um, This is our natural sinful condition. We're born in sin, which means we're born spiritually dead, by nature, children of wrath. And who else is like this? Not only the Ephesians, not only us, but also the rest of mankind. Everybody, born in sin, born spiritually dead, by nature, children of wrath. Now, uh, you know, some of the hang-up with that would be, well, if you're dead, you can't do anything. Uh, And if everyone starts out dead, then no one has the ability, you know, they don't have any spiritual senses, so how are we going to choose a relationship with God, how are we going to follow after God if we're dead? If you're dead, you're completely at the mercy of God to bring you to spiritual life. And really, that's the exact point that is being made in Ephesians 2. Being brought from death to life is according to the riches of God's mercy, according to His great love with which He loved us. And not only Ephesians 2, we'll look at another passage, 1 Peter 1, but it's all according to God and what He has done. But some say dead must mean something like dormant or what he really must mean is sick because it just can't make sense that you're dead and you're walking. Um, The problem with that is this. If dead doesn't mean dead, then Jesus didn't really die. And if Jesus didn't really die and rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we of all people are most to be pitied because... We're putting all of our eggs in Jesus' basket. If Jesus didn't actually die for our sins, then our sins are not forgiven. If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then death is not defeated. And we're all wasting our time and we don't have any hope of being right with God and being um, safe through death. So we should just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Our salvation depends on Jesus actually being dead and Jesus actually rising from death. Dead has to mean dead. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and He rose from the dead on the third day. Paul uses the same word in Ephesians 2.1 that he used elsewhere to describe Jesus' death or that was used elsewhere. Necros, dead, dead body, corpse, without life. And he uses this word in order to communicate that our original spiritual condition was death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. All right. Does that make sense, at least on paper, to everyone? Anyone have any questions? Or comments? All right. So, what problem then does this present? Well, lots. But. You know, dead people can't do anything. Um, I hate to be maybe a little too graphic, but just over a year ago, I stood over my grandfather's dead body. And I've told you before, I was in such grief and shock, and it was just a... I, I told him to get up. He didn't. He was dead. Dead people can't do anything. Our natural sinful condition is spiritual death you are dead in your sins and dead people cannot do anything and this is what that means the predicament that your sin puts you in is perhaps much worse than you originally thought the predicament that sin has put all mankind in is maybe worse than you thought It's not as though mankind is drowning, waiting for someone to throw a life preserver. It's not as though you were drowning in your sin and you needed God to throw you a life preserver. You were dead at the bottom of the ocean. Sin had made it to where, spiritually speaking, all mankind starts out at the bottom of the ocean. But God is saving the world. We need to understand the devastating effect that... Our sin had on us and all mankind to understand how great this salvation really is. God is rescuing people from spiritual death, not spiritual sickness. We weren't just drowning, we were dead at the bottom of the ocean. We were dead in our sins. Though we were alive physically, we were dead spiritually. And if we were to remain in our sins, we would go to hell. But we were dead. And we couldn't do anything to get out of our sins because we were dead in our sins. Do you understand the problem? Everyone must be freed from the bondage of sin in order to be right with God eternally. And one of the things that this means is that we must be brought from death to life. We have to repent of our sins and believe in Christ to be saved. What can dead people do? Dead people can't repent. Dead people can't believe. We were dead in our sins, dependent on God to rescue us from our sins, to bring us to new life, and to enable us to repent and to believe the Gospel. All mankind, I could say it a hundred ways, and I'm just... All mankind starts out dead in sin. All mankind is dependent on God to rescue. All mankind is dependent on God to bring to new life and to bring to repentance in order to believe. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's verse 1, verse 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, according to the great love with which He loved us. You understand that the thing, Paul is setting up this contrast in order to highlight the mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God and God alone. It's all God's work. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in our sin. God rescued us from the clutches of sin and He brought us to new life. You don't have to turn there. Uh, or if you're quick, you can. I'll read from 1 Peter 1. Well, go ahead and turn there. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.3 I feel like I reference 1 Peter like once a month. If you haven't ever studied 1 Peter, now's a good time to start. It's a wonderful book. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'll read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when we were born, we were alive physically and we were dead spiritually. That's the whole point of Jesus going to Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And He's like, how could I be born again? I'm already born. Should I go back in my mother's womb? No, there's another birth. You're dead, spiritually. You need life, spiritually, and there must be another birth. So, according to His great mercy, God has caused us to be born again, to be born spiritually. We didn't have anything to do with being born the first time. We didn't have anything to do with being born the second time. God did it. God raised Jesus from the dead, and according to His great mercy, God raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's all mercy. It's all God. Salvation is God's work. It's God's gift. We were dead. God caused us to be born to spiritual life. Now, I want you to notice something. Uh, Peter's opening sounds a whole lot like Paul's opening in Ephesians. Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And I went to great lengths to show you that this whole section for Paul is this section of praise and worship and thanksgiving because it's all God, it's all grace, it's all His work. And Peter's doing the same thing. Blessed be God. All praise to God. All glory to God. He did it all. He predestined us. He redeemed us. He adopted us. He brought us from death to life. Alright, turn to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. I'm going to show you a couple passages to illustrate, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Um, I showed, some of you were here a few weeks back when I showed you this passage, Ezekiel 37. But, if you weren't here, I want everyone to see it. So, um, the only thing you really need to know about this chapter, and really this section, um, is that it is a section of prophecy for the New Covenant. So, Ezekiel is a prophet to the people of Israel when they're in captivity in Babylon, and it's this terrible day. And what, what what hope do we have? Well, the hope that he's proclaiming and announcing is the new covenant, which wouldn't come for years and years, but it came in Christ and has been established in Christ. So when you read like chapter thirty-four, it's a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, a prophecy about a good shepherd who will come. That's about Jesus. You look at thirty-six. We've we've read that a hundred times in here, but the. Uh, you know, I will put my, I'll take your heart of stone out, put your heart of flesh, give you my spirit so that you can follow me. That's a prophecy of the new covenant where the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us um, to live a new life. Verse 37, the same. It's a prophecy of the new covenant. I'll read verses 1 through 10. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. The hand of the Lord was upon me and He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, God said to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh, Lord God, you know. That's a total cop-out. Like, are you kidding? You know. I mean, you know God. Verse 4, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then He said to me, Prophesy to the breath. That's the Spirit. Breath and Spirit, same word. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army." There you have it. Ezekiel speaks God's words to the bones. The spirit comes and the bones become a living army. God brought life where there was death. Now turn to John 11. This passage is a little bit more familiar. John 11, I'll read 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, it's Lazarus, he's been dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. The point of these passages is to show us that God raises the dead. Our natural sinful condition is spiritual death. Though physically alive, we were spiritually dead. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So there's a few things I want us to think about as we close. Um, One, you know, in a room this size, there's always a chance that someone in here, some of you may not be alive. Um, I've been spending a good deal of time with this guy recently in a counseling situation. And he would say, and I would affirm, he's just become a Christian in the last few months. He's just been brought from death. To life, but he's been around the church for years and years. And this week, he was explaining all this to me, and he said something like this. He said, "You know, I was always in church, and I saw how this relationship with God affected others, and it just didn't affect me that way." And um, he said, "But you know, I, I I was completely self-absorbed, and and looking uh, looking back, nothing about the church was changing that. I would go home." Still completely self-absorbed. Until he was brought to life. Until God changed his heart. Until he had new eyes to see that he was completely self-absorbed. You understand? I mean, you wouldn't even make that statement unless you saw that it was the reality. Now he's seeing his sin. Now he's broken and humbled by his sin. Now he's understanding the significance of this message that we always talk about, Jesus' life for his life. Now he's sensitive to the Word of God. Now he feeds on the Word of God. Now he needs the Word of God. I say all this to say it's possible to be in the church, even for years and years, and to still be dead in your sins. On the flip side, a couple ways to know that you're alive. Are you broken and humbled by your sin? Some more than others I know, but have you ever been broken and humbled by your sin? Is the good news of forgiveness in Christ good news to you? Are you sensitive to the Word of God? Do you, do you delight in the Word of God? I'm not talking about do you have a quiet time every day. I'm talking about is it food and water to your soul? Do you sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word and say, thank you? Just some diagnostic. Number two, some of you, maybe many of you, are alive in Christ and think you have a boring testimony. That's not true uh, because Ephesians 2 is your testimony, no matter who you are. So whether you were three years old when you came to Christ or whether you were 30 years old when you were saved, you were dead in your sins, God rescued you from death and made you alive in Christ. Even if you can't remember what it was like to be dead, even if you can't remember what it was like to follow the, the course of this world, some of you were blessed... To grow up in a Christian home and you know, been a Christian as long as I can remember. That's completely valid. There's nothing wrong with that. I pray the same for my kids. But you should know that your testimony is still miraculous no matter how old you were and no matter how deep you wandered into the ways of this world. You were dead in your sins and God made you alive in Christ. That is no less significant than my testimony even though I might be able to look at my life in death and uh, point to some more things. Everyone in here who's alive in Christ has an equally powerful testimony. Number three, the people that you want to reach with the Gospel are dead. Now, one of the things that we should say from this is it's pretty unreasonable to be frustrated with someone for not believing when they are incapable of believing. They're dead. Dead people can't do anything. I think one of the things that happens as we further understand our natural condition is that we grow more patient with non-Christians in their sin. They are spiritually dead. What do you expect? That said, how will they come to life? How will they believe? How will they change? You know, one of the things that just struck me as I was just reading is Jesus says, I'm raising Lazarus for all these other people. So one of the ways is just being around a transformed life in you. The more humbled by your sin you become, the more glad you become in Christ, the more that changes your character and and who you are. That's one way, but... Maybe yeah, primarily, how how does God bring people to life? How will they believe? How will they change? Think back to the two passages I showed you, Ezekiel 37 and John 11. Can can anybody tell me the common theme in how how life is brought where there was death? God did it. God did it more more precisely than that. God speaks. Someone speaks. I mean, Ezekiel speaks. But in John 11, Jesus speaks. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is raised from the dead. In Ezekiel 37, God's messenger speaks God's words. Right? Son of man, can these bones live? O oh, Lord God, you know. Prophesy over these bones. Or, or say to the bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to the bones. So he does speak, an agent speaks, but he speaks the Word of God. Only God can bring new life where there was death. Only God can speak life into existence, but He uses us. He speaks through us and He has given us the words of life. So earlier I read from Luke 24, post-resurrection Jesus shows up to the disciples, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The next verse says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So here we are, 2,000 years later, in a nation far, far away from Jerusalem, the words of life have been proclaimed to us and we have come to life. Repentance and forgiveness of sins were proclaimed to us either in our homes or in our church or from a friend or whoever it was and the bones now live. Here we are a part of an exceedingly great living army of Christians all over the world. And you know what? Perhaps the greatest weapon of our warfare is the Word of God. And within His Word, the Gospel, repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus. God has given us the words of life and we have a responsibility to speak to the bones. You may feel silly speaking to bones, but speak and the bones live. So, are there non-Christians in your life? If not, I want to know how. But uh, of course there are. Mine too. We have the words of life. We have to share them. So we're back to my suggestion from a few weeks ago that we're all going to find someone and invite them to read the Bible with us. Um, As I've heard Les Newsom has said, we need to get people in front of the freight train of the word. It changes people. People come from death to life. So, have you found your person yet? Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, the challenge is to come up with a person in your life that either does not know Jesus or at best has wandered far from Him and it's at best questionable that they ever really knew Him. And begin praying for them Um, daily. Begin praying for open doors to talk to them About spiritual things. Begin reconnecting with them if need be. I said last time when I talked about this, you know, it's weird if you haven't talked to them in seven years and you call them and are like, hey, want to read the Bible? You know, I mean, maybe not. Maybe just do that. But, you know, it might not be a bad start to say, like, you want to go get lunch or just kind of reconnect. And then the challenge is that at some point before Christmas, you ask them, if they would like to read through a book of the Bible with you. One of the reasons I say this is I read that little red book titled Evangelism, and its uh, he's an elder in a church in Dubai, which is a Muslim country, and, you know, people don't just come to church. Unless they become Christians. And so they've had to be very evangelistic. And he has said, in all the evangelistic ways that I've tried to reach out to people in our community, the single best thing that we've seen return the most fruit and people be most receptive to, is just simply to say, would you like to read the Bible with me? A lot of people are curious about the Bible. Um, And uh, to do it with you perhaps is maybe not as threatening. I don't know. But also you're getting them in front of the words of life you know you get in a conversation with somebody at lunch and you look uh, you're at a loss for words and oh there's that scripture but I don't know it well enough and then you feel guilty and you go home and you're like man I missed an opportunity well welcome to that club you know but here's an opportunity to just you keep showing up reading the Bible and and you know if you get to that point asking them to read the Bible with you and they say yes I'll be glad to direct you from there what book what Do I need resources to help me? that's, That's cake. This is all in an effort to be faithful to our responsibility to speak the words of life and to see people that we know and love be rescued from the clutches of sin. So that one day they can say, as we can say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. In Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we were dead, not drowning, not sick, not dormant, but dead. Bottom of the ocean dead, dry bones dead, four days, odor dead. We were bound in our sin. We were destined for hell. And uh, because You are rich in mercy, because of Your great love, Lord, You, even when we were dead in our sins, You made us alive together with Christ. Your grace is amazing. Uh, I know that my heart is simply to be faithful to the text and also to promote Your grace and Your work in our lives, I pray that Your Spirit would affect that um, in our hearts and minds. Where I have erred, will you, uh, will you stop up ears? And Lord, we're all pretty scared about being more intentional evangelistically. We all feel like we don't really know what we're doing, and we don't know the Bible good enough, and we don't know what we should say and when, but we take great comfort in knowing that You've even told us to pray for the words that we should say. And uh, Lord, in those encounters, will You give us thoughts to think and words to say and will You give us the right countenance to be welcoming and inviting. We, after all, are just beggars who have found bread. We were dead. You brought us to life. We just want others to know the same safety and security and joy in Christ. So even those people that have come up On our minds, as I've been talking, Lord, we pray for them collectively now that you would open their eyes and open their hearts, uh, give them new hearts to respond to your call. Lord, we pray that you would use us, we pray that you would open doors and opportunities to speak words of life, and that they would receive them uh, with glad hearts. And, uh, Lord, Just use us. Use us to expand the kingdom. Use us to reach the world for Christ. Here we are. You've placed us in a good church. We're maturing as believers. And uh, Lord, we we pray that You would use us. And if there is a person in here, Lord, that has not seen, would You cause them like You've caused us to be born again so that they too can see the kingdom? so that they too can rejoice in this great salvation. Uh, We thank You for Your grace and mercy at work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.